Thank you for joining us in Season 2 of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel, good afternoon. Howdy. How are you, man? Shalom. I'm good. High holidays are officially over as of yesterday. <laughs> you made it. You're the, the sprint to the finish, you busted through the ribbon, and now you're on the other side. We all made it. Yeah. How are you? Did you? Uh, how was the booth? Was it beautiful and amazing? It was very rainy for some of it, but some of it was beautiful. Although, um, interestingly and perhaps counterintuitively, one of the lessons of Sukkot is also about frailty and fragility. And so bad weather, even though it might not be comfortable, it actually enhances in some ways the themes of Sukkot. But that's that's for another conversation. <laughs> right. That's not nearly as troublesome. I, I'm surprised we didn't just grab that bait and hook because that would be way less troublesome than the topic we're, we're about to attempt to discuss. Well, that you're the one that designed the calendar. I mean, we hey, we <laughs> we dreamed it. We put it all together. Maybe that's why we took a month off because we were actually afraid of this week's yeah. topic, and we knew it would be next. So we honestly, I'm, we a, just I'm took, afraid of a lot of. I'm afraid of a lot of them, Joel. But yeah, I I, I hear you. <laughs> this one's the biggie, uh, especially in our denomination. Like um, Presbyterians have been arguing and splitting and suing one another over this next issue for the last 30, 35, 40, 50 years, it feels like. Um, and I love the way we're just teasing people along. They're like, okay, what's the topic? And I don't want to tell them yet. But we, at my denomination, my corner of the Christian denomination has been whew, having a hard time with it. And right now the Methodists are kind of split and divided um, and so we have brothers and sisters who serve in Methodist churches who are in in panic mode. Uh, thankfully, the, the Presbyterians went through that 15 or 20 years ago. So I ache for them, but um, I'm I'm ready to talk it out with you and see where we stand. And that topic is I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna uh, ruin the sport. I'm gonna let the cat out of the bag, Joel. Yeah, I know you wanna you wanna keep it close for as long as possible for the suspense. Like a good Marvel movie stinger, or I guess not a stinger, but waiting for the stinger. Maybe you'll edit that out. You probably won't, though. Uh, our topic for today is sexuality, religion and sexuality. Um, and of course, that's a difficult topic regardless of religion, but throw religion into the mix. And it, it's probably even more difficult. And the difficulty lies in what our holy texts say about it. It's not, I don't think it's ontologically difficult, if I can use one of those words I learned in rabbinical school, but we make it difficult because some of us, and by us, I just, I mean religious people, say that God demands or wants or expects you to be such and such. And if you're not such and such with regard to sexuality, then you're going to hell or you're not allowed to be on the bima or you can't be clergy and all of these different things. So let's get into it. I'm ready. Yeah, me too. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, 
First, I, I think you need to define ontological for everyone. It has to do with reality, ultimate reality. And so what, what I'm suggesting is that in and of itself, from a purely philosophical basis, sexuality and religion are not in tension with one another. But we make them in tension with one another, we as human beings, because of the beliefs that we have, not because it's just out there as part of creation. Nice. And, and um, we already have in previous in this season, we did a she's and he's episode where we were talked about gender issues uh, and gender hierarchy issues, patriarchy in the text, um, how men had all almost all of the power. Women were property of men and were seldom considered uh, worthy to be preachers or worthy to be leaders. They were uh, barely above children. Um, and eventually the children, if they were male, uh, jumped above the women. So uh, in the cultural hierarchy, all of that is gender. Today is a different angle into a similar conversation because we're talking not about gender as much as sexuality uh, and the way that um, the genders express themselves sexually to one another with one another. And uh, yeah, Joel, how about you start? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whenever I'm starting this, I always go to Genesis 1. It's not really a problematic text, um, but it does something interesting. Uh, in Genesis 1, in the creation story, God says, let us make humankind in our image. And and that version of the Genesis story is, we, we might have talked about this before, the plural Hebrew God, Elohim. Um, so if you really translate it, it, God does not say, I will make humankind in my image. It's let us, whoever God is talking to about us, hmm, that's interesting, in our image according to our likeness. And so God creates humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God creates them, male and female, God creates them. There is something about God's plurality inside God's self that becomes expressed in uh, the sexuality of male and female, and both of them are called very good by God. Um, and they are encouraged to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, so there is a recognition that these genders of God, when they become human, they can combine with one another to multiply. And and I love that Genesis 1, the very beginning of it all, uh, points us to uh, that multiple genderosity and uh, implied sexuality that comes from God into the created hu human humanity. I've certainly recognized the gender there. I don't I, I wouldn't have put it in terms of sexuality that that's an interesting approach what does that the be verse. fruitful and multiply suggest to you oh surely that's sexuality but the creation itself of man of let us create them in our image uh-huh notice none of the other creation although it's all in there they aren't not like god does not encourage the earth or the sky or the seas or even the animals or even the plants to be fruitful and multiply they automatically know how to do that uh, but something about humankind 
<laughs> needed the encouragement of God to go, be fruitful, multiply. Uh, and, and so as we, male to female, come from godness and are called very good and are encouraged to be fruitful and multiply, there is something about the God spark in all of humanity that encourages sexuality and wants us to um, enjoy it, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to let uh, all of creation see us participating in creation, much like animals and plants do, without needing encouragement. And this is, of course, one of the unfortunate arguments against same-sex relationships in that you, if you're gay, you can't be fr fruitful and multiply. Therefore, you're, air quotes, sinning. Um, and that becomes kind of the cherry-picked fruit text for that. Or fruit yeah. text. Because <laughs> I said cherry-picked. The cherry-picked text for that. Um, <laughs> so what are some of these, um, what are some of the other ways that the texts are problematic when discussing human sexuality? Well, I'll, you know, I would say it, in traditional Judaism, there is a, uh, I, I think there is a tension and there's certainly a controversy with regard to birth control. Um, because if bearing children is holy, and if not only is it holy, but it's commanded because of be fruitful and multiply, then what does it mean to have sex for the purposes not of procreation or to masturbate for that matter? So in the, in the Bible, Onan spills his own seed and it, things do not go well for him. And it's, it, interestingly, the, the modern Hebrew word to masturbate is lehit onen. It's literally to onen oneself. And, um, you know, I think... Many of us who consider ourselves liberal with regard to religion do see sexuality as something to be enjoyed as well as to serve the process of procreation. And those are not one and the same. Uh, but there are, of course, those that differ with us. Mm -hmm. Including in tradition, you know, according to the text, I think it's a fair argument. And again, I say this almost every episode, but it's one of the things that makes it, I don't know if easier is the right word, but as a Reformed Jew that has the right and responsibility to interpret the Torah for myself, choosing not to believe that it was written by God, I can do something different interpretively than someone who does think it was written by God. Mm -hmm. And if I could just say one more thing that... Skipping forward a few books to the infamous line in Leviticus, which says, a man shall not lie with another man, I think that most Jews who are traditional get it wrong, even from their perspective, if I can have the, the chutzpah, the gall to say that, which is the, the actual prohibition, if we're talking about what the Torah literally says, is against a man having sex with another man. It's not against a man having a homosexual relationship, and it's also not against a woman having sex or a woman being in a homosexual relationship. It's very specifically about, about male sex with another man. Um, so when Orthodox Jews kind of generalize that to a 
uh, prohibition of all homosexual relationships. I, it's like, well, where are you getting that from? Even from your own logic. Um, and now, of course, we as Reformed Jews do something completely different with that, which is to say it was written in its own time and context. And that is one part of the Torah that we object to and we're not going to follow. And hmm. we can do that, as we've talked about. Wow. So, um, yeah, the Leviticus text is out there. There's a bunch of texts in the New Testament as well. But the one, uh, another crossover area for us might be um, Sodom, um, which some people grab the word sodomy from uh, and right. apply today. But um, a lot of people hear that story and they think, okay, there were these strangers from out of town. Um, they came to visit and, and Lot was there and he met them and uh, he brought them into his house. And the other men were angry that he let these strangers come. And so they come and they say, hey, give us those men. We want to have our way with them. And um, the way that people think, okay, that's the sin, um, that these angry men are trying to have sex with these other men. Um, and the assumption is that sodomy is uh, the homosexual, almost abusive sex from uh, the men of the city to these strangers from out of town who happen to be in the city. The real story isn't like that, though. We've quickly summarized it that way, but that's, that's not what it says. Um, Lot and the strangers in the house, uh, they come and they want them to have their way with them. Lot first offers his daughters to the men outside um, who have never known another man, it says. Uh, I'll, I beg you, do not act so wickedly here. Have my virgin daughters. And they reply, no, these fellows came here as an alien. And that's why they're, they press hard against Lot and against Lot's door. And the angels blind them. Uh, so it's, it's not quite what we were thinking. And Jesus refers to the sin of Sodom in one of his chapters. Um, he's telling the his disciples to go out, go anywhere among the Gentiles, enter any town, um, and as you go, tell everybody about the kingdom, and don't take extra stuff with you. You won't need it. People will be hospitable to you. You don't. You won't need a bag. You won't need multiple tunics. Wherever you go. Look for people who welcome you, and they will feed you, and, and they will welcome you into their home. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it isn't, just keep moving. Um, and then he says, truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom or Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town that doesn't welcome you. So there's no mention in Jesus' reference to Sodom or Gomorrah about sexuality, it's all about hospitality to the stranger. Um, he perceives, Jesus perceives, the sin of Sodom not as a sexuality issue, but as a hospitality issue. Correct. And Jews, Jewish tradition does similarly. So isn't it odd that in, the, in our modern American religious tradition, though, Sodom, sodomy, the sin of Sodom, is perceived as a sexual 
mistake or a sexual sin, as opposed to a hospitality to aliens and immigrants and refugees issue. Well, it doesn't surprise me. It disappoints me because, <laughs> I mean, if you think of America coming from a, a puritanical worldview where so much of sexuality was and continues to be taboo, the um, the feelings of one whose sexuality is different than you was, was and again, unfortunately is seen by some as not only different, but abhorrent. And so it's very easy to conflate my own possible discomfort with then saying, God finds it abhorrent. So the Leviticus text, um, those are the quickie little snippet texts. And and how do you, how do y'all talk about that? Uh, how do you read that text? Is it something, yeah, okay, it said it, and that was true for them, but it's not going to be true for us. What are the other options as we read? Which text is it in Leviticus, and what are the other options about it? I want to say it's in chapter 19 because it's part of the holiness code which where god says i am holy i'm holy i'll get the reference in the in the show notes mm -hmm. um which now means i really have to do it um, <laughs> uh yeah it's always right I, around there right yeah yeah but i i think as we've talked about it, it's very possible to take the Torah seriously and still say, I'm not going to follow this. Uh -huh. It's not saying the Torah, I'm not erasing it. I'm not saying the Torah doesn't claim that. Or if I were to assign a bar bat mitzvah student that portion, I'm not going to cross out that line because we don't agree with it. Actually, quite the opposite. I'll have mm -hmm. them struggle with it and, and tell, you know, kind of tell me in the congregation what they do with it as a as a way to deepen their Jewish identity and understanding. Um, mm -hmm. But it, but it, it, it's all one, and I, I, we may have said this, or I had this conversation with a friend, but um, one thing that the Torah, well, rather the interpreters of Torah do when interpreting a text is not just looking at the words of a verse, but also sometimes what is it following? What is it preceding? And in this case, the verse precedes, a man shall not lie with an animal. Uh -huh. And, and I, I heard a modern Orthodox out rabbi, he's gay, who does believe the Torah was written by God. So how he kind of justifies it was fascinating because he was saying what the way he interprets the text is that a man shall not have sex with a man the previous verse, in the same way that a man has sex with an animal. And if one was to, you know, God forbid, engage in bestiality, that's devoid of, um, I don't want to say devoid of emotion, but certainly devoid of intimacy and care and feeling. And so th this rabbi, I want to say his name was Yitz Greenberg, but I will, um, I will find that also. A fairly well-known Orthodox rabbi, um, he, he takes the, the following verse and kind of retrojects it back to the prohibition on, say, on sex between men to mm -hmm. say that 
as as long as it's done with love and care and concern the same way it should be for a heterosexual coupling um then that's okay now that is a re- a, a rereading <laughs> and it's i would even say it's a drastic rereading but um i mean th- that's the sort of things jews have done for 4000 years mhm but the di- but it's a difference of approaches he's still approaching the text as this is you know God wrote this text, whereas for me, it's not. And one more example, and then and then I'll be quiet for a second, is um, when I was a rabbi in Omaha a long time ago, back when I was young, um, a very good friend of mine, his daughter was getting having her bat mitzvah, and his good friend from Chicago was coming in, and he asked if he could stay with me. And this good friend happened to be a fairly observant Jew. And yeah, I mean, he rapped to fill in and he actually prayed in my apartment before we went to synagogue because as a reformed synagogue, it wouldn't, you know, quote unquote, count. Fascinating guy. right? And um, he was also gay. And mm-hmm. he and I talked about it and he said it, he, he took a totally different approach. He said, I am sinning. Hmm. God doesn't want me to be gay, but I am just wow. like, you know, no one's perfect. <laughs> And we all do, we all fall off the ladder somewhere, so to speak. I mean, I'm paraphrasing his words, and this is like 15 years ago. But essentially, you know, the, if I was a better Jew, I would be heterosexual. And I, I just found it so interesting that he believed that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. When it was also against his self interest, right? I mean, it, it was. Mm-hmm. And he had and, uh, thought about it deeply. I mean, this wasn't just kind of a, you know, assumption he made or a belief he made out of nowhere. I mean, this is a educated, thoughtful guy. Right. And uh, there is that blurry space again between uh, gender and sexuality again. But um, For sure. in the Presbyterian church, we had this phase as we were maturing to where we are now, where we said, okay, we're not going to call it sinful to be gay. We're only going to call it sinful to practice um, sexuality um, in an LGBTQ way. And and so, so that's we that d- distinction. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's exactly the distinction in Leviticus. Hmm. If you read it literally, it's about yeah. sexuality. It's not about the relationship. But Yeah, and we drew that line for a bit. But at the same time, we also drew the line that marriage was between one man and one woman which meant that sexuality was only legitimate between one man and one woman. And that same, uh, it's Leviticus 18, by the way, that same chapter has all kinds of sexual instruction about not having uh, sexual relations with anybody in your family, right? Uh, you, not with your dad or your mom, not with your brothers or sisters, not with the offspring of your brothers and sisters, um, never with a a woman and her daughter or son, never with a man and his son or daughter. Uh, so they understood something about inbreeding, apparently, and were trying their best to, they had seen the consequences of that and, and were trying to warn against it in some way. Um, but also in that same zone of Leviticus, there are some other basic commands, like, hey, if you're going to make a sacrifice to God, um, uh, of food, uh, you have to eat it on the same day you offer it. And if you wait three days to eat the leftovers, you're it's an abomination and you're supposed to be outcast from the whole community. Um, 
when you harvest your your crops, you're not supposed to harvest all the way to the edges. Um, you're supposed to leave a section of it unharvested so it can go to the poor who can come pick it. And and I live in on the eastern shore of Maryland. There are monster fields all around me, corn, <laughs> soy, everything. Those machines go right up to the very edge. And it says, hey, if you strip your land bare, that's a perversion of the land, and you're abusing the poor and the alien around you. Um, it also says things like, you're not going to lie. Um, and if you swear falsely, you're profaning the name of God if you tell a lie. Now, what's hard for me to appreciate is, in these communal rules that they were trying to establish in their time and their context, they knew what broke community. They knew lying, they knew stealing, they knew cheating broke community and built distrust. So all of these, uh, I, I guess, minutia or uh, sub, sub, sub laws all are attached to the big ones. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Uh, but what we end up doing is we take the sub, sub, sub version of it uh, and we lift it up like it's a biggie. Meanwhile, we ignore, like, people are lying in our government and around us all the time. Why is not that perceived as an equal abomination to in most Christian churches or houses of worship in America as some of the uh, sexual differences that we're willing to attack with strong words like abomination from, from Scripture? I get confused as to why we're not willing to lift up all the statutes if we're going to lift up any of the statutes. Well, this is where I think it's just human nature to lift up the statutes that we already concur with. Hmm. Yeah. I, the, or vehemently don't concur with, and the, and therefore we're going to stand on the streets, you know, with the with the with signs yeah. saying you're going to hell. This is where you're not supposed to round off the hair on your temples or at the edges of your beard. This is where you're not supposed to eat anything with blood, right? This is, you're supposed to defer to the old. So if somebody older than you has a preference on how to do things over you, the younger are supposed to defer. We, American Christianity and American Judaism don't do that. We discuss it. We debate it. We decide together, regardless of old or young. Um, and it says, if an immigrant comes to your land, you will not oppress the immigrant. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. You are the aliens in the land of Egypt. That command is in Leviticus 19, right there yes, with the sexu sexuality commands of Leviticus 18. But but what I get so frustrated with is people will will use the sexuality command aggressively against brothers and sisters and ignore the immigrant commands, the lie, cheat, steal commands, and, and just ignore them, push them off to the side like they don't matter. Oh, those we can forget about. But the sexual ones, those matter. Ugh, it's so frustrating. Yes, it is.
Let me ask you a question. Were you, because I, I know the Presbyterian movement, as you just alluded to, kind of went through this recently. Were you a pastor during that kind of transition? Uh, in the early 90s, no. I was just a, a fresh out of college, married um, church attendee. Um, through the rest of the night, but I was, I didn't like it that the church was doing it that way. But if you remember, that was in the era of Bill Clinton's don't ask, don't tell policies in the military. So right. the church was kind of mirroring that uh, don't ask, don't tell way. The issue became, okay, um, and I guess this is how it's where it still sits, um, is being gay or lesbian, is that a creation of God? Um, and some people say, no, it is only a choice. That there's no such thing as gay or lesbian. There's only male and female. And, and that's where they're getting confused between gender and sexuality. Um, for me, I had met enough human beings in my 20, 25 years on the planet that I realized I knew some very uh, female males and some very male females. And I also had been on the planet long enough to see male males or female males or male females who were attracted to uh, different forms of those gender and sexuality spectrums. So I was already taking it out of a dualistic frame, male and female, and that's it, to more of a spectrum frame, um, gender-wise. And then that also allowed me to give some room to sexuality uh, being on a spectrum as well. Um, and, and that room felt to me more like the embodiment of Jesus in the world to those who were outcast by the rest of society than a judgmental church uh, drawing some really hard, fast lines around human beings and exclusive of those human beings. Um, I wasn't sure what the scripture said about it then. Um, and I heard people quote scripture against other humans in a very angry, judgmental way. And I knew doing that makes Jesus very angry. <laughs> so I wasn't sure. comfortable attacking any fellow human beings with scripture like many of the more conservatives did. But over the last 20 years, I did become a pastor, and then the church started uh, getting more um, open to ordination of LGBTQ persons um, as pastors, um, and have, in the last five, seven years, uh, allowed gay marriages, uh, same-sex marriages, to be officiated in churches and presided at by pastors without us suing one another when we do that. Um, basically saying that each church will have its room to recognize uh, a relationship between two same-sex individuals, and each pastor will have their ability to preside at a, a marriage ceremony between two same-sex individuals, and we're not going to attack each other because of our differences there. Right. Yeah, and the reform movement, um, I should know the year, actually, but it, it was before that because I, I know that the reform movement was the first major religious body to publicly make a a stand, a vote, a resolution um, for full equality uh, of uh, people who are homosexual, uh, and that includes marriage, ordination, everything. 
Um, now, that doesn't mean that everyone accepted it at first. And I certainly, I would imagine I have a few congregants now in 2021 who struggle with it. Um, but the vast majority of Reformed Jews um, don't, thankfully. Or it certainly don't struggle, I think, with should people who are gay um, be allowed to have a bar bat mitzvah? Should they be allowed to be ordained? I, I, I cannot imagine. Um, I mean, someone would really be a lone voice, and rightfully so. Um, I think where we struggle now is where America struggles uh, with uh, transgender um, and gender identity um, as opposed to sexual identity. Um, and as a movement, we've, we've made, again, we've made, I think, the right resolutions and goals, but changing people's minds and hearts is very different than voting on a resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as, you know, it, I remember, I think it was Ellen DeGeneres when she came out. I could be wrong, but she said something about how, you know, you all know someone who's gay. You just might not know that you do. And, <laughs> right. and I think, you know, and and it's like you, you see that they are just like everyone else that that you socialize with and love um, in every way other mm-hmm. than their preferred uh, partner. But I, I think that not everyone has that experience with people who are transgender. And so there's still a stigma there, unfortunately. Um, and I think right. that's the kind of the next step on this. If I use the word evolution, I think you know what I mean. And for me and Jill, it became it became an important thing for she and uh, the two of us to get in sync with one another. Uh, Jill's grandmother had a gay brother who in his era was institutionalized because of that. Um, Jill's mother had a gay brother who was married and, and had children. And then later um, that marriage broke up and then he, he was able to be more of himself and then Jill had a gay brother um, who unfortunately contracted AIDS in the 70s and 80s and then died in the mid-90s. So when she and I were married and, and had three sons, <laughs> we, we kind of realized there's a possibility here. <laughs> and it's, it's not minuscule that one of our sons may be gay. And if so... What is our approach to that? Um, so we raised our boys with way more openness about gender and sexuality. We didn't use male-female language. Um, someday you'll, we would say, someday we didn't say, someday you'll have a wife. We would say things like, yep. someday you'll have someone who loves you and who you love in return, and the two of you will commit to one another for the rest of time. And, and that language was just meant to prepare for that. Um, and we don't do that despite our uh, Christian upbringing uh, for her and my Christian understanding for me. We do that because of our Christian understanding, where uh, I would hope 
that our boys could find somebody to love and who loves them in return. And whoever that is, um, we're going to be supportive. Yeah, absolutely. Same. There are some New Testament texts that that go after sexuality, and a lot of uh, Christian preachers, they will obviously use uh, the story of Sodom from Genesis or the Levitical codes uh, to go after that. And I've those are easier for me to unravel as a Christian pastor. I can quickly show that Sodom, Jesus' own words, was not a sexuality issue. It was a hospitality issue. And I can quickly attack Leviticus just by lifting up other codes that the same Christian pastor isn't using equally. But where I get, it, where it's a little harder for me is in um, things like Romans, um, where Paul says something like, um, the women gave up natural intercourse for unnatural in the same way the men gave up natural intercourse with women and were consumed by passion for one another and uh, committed acts with other men. Um, and received uh, did acts that uh, that were worthy of penalty, um, but there are some scholars who have looked into that, and and their impression is that those are power sexual relationships, not just um, same sex relationships, but where um, a woman of power, maybe the the woman of the house has a, uh, a servant or a slave girl over which she forces into something. Or a man has a slave or a servant or an underling or an employee uh, or uh, a boy even, and they force them because of their power dynamic into an activity. Um, and I think that even now I would be the power dynamic in a sexual relationship is critical. We have to be very careful to not let any power dynamic, even if it's even if it's uh, heterosexual, the power dynamic absolutely can be the sinful issue there. Um, so I I tend to look at those references in Paul for the power dynamic first, and and to judge all sexual relationships as whether they were consensual or not. Um, mutually consensual. And if not, okay. How often are you asked about sexuality or sexual issues in in temple and synagogue? Not often. What about with uh, the young ones that are preparing for their bar and bat mitzvahs? Young ones even less. because, Because I find that with kids... Gender and sexuality, it's not quite right to say it doesn't matter, but it it's not, you know, it's like when we were kids, when someone was gay, unfortunately, it was kind of like a thing, right? Like, even if, even if you weren't, um, uh, you know, even if you didn't have horrible notions of them, it would still kind of be a gossipy thing, like, oh, that person's gay. And like, kids don't care. It's just, it's like, no one cares. It, and it's so beautiful. It's just, it's so wonderful to mm-hmm. see. Um, there is a, I don't know if uh, in Judaism, 
But in Christianity, there's a thing called purity culture um, that encourages uh, zero sexual activity until in marriage. Um, and that kind of, uh, and it's under what a lot of Christians will call the biblical definition of marriage between one man, one woman. So uh, they, right. they try to say that the scriptures are clear, that sexuality is only okay in marriage, and marriage is only okay between one man and one woman, therefore, right? And they, that's the quickie steps through. Um, I, as a Christian pastor, I struggle with that logic first. Um, the biblical definition of marriage is men, you can have as many wives as you want, um, you can sleep around with your multiple wives, your servants, or anybody in town that you happen to bump into, and as long as you pay them fairly, it's okay. So, biblical definition of marriage is multiple women and some women on the side is okay for men, but not for women. Um, Correct. And There's that, definitely an inequality. Yeah. So, I am not okay with the shortcutty biblical definition of marriage that gets tossed around. I also, I mean, this is where the very definition of Reformed Judaism comes into play for me is we don't live in biblical times. I'm not taking my ox to the market anymore either, right? <laughs> you don't and, have to so, tithe one-tenth of your sheep. Yeah. So to say that marriage, the definition of marriage has changed in thousands of years, it's like, God, I hope I hope it has. Right. And what what for me, what I try to do when I bump into Christian purity culture or the fear that the church where I am practicing is embodying some of that purity culture onto our younger people or our older people. Right. If you think about it, OK, just because you're 55 and divorced. And using Tinder, right, to to find your your next bow. Um, the the rules aren't any different for you. Why why are the rules one thing for a fifteen year old or a twenty five year old than they are for a fifty five year old? Um, if it's the rules, the rules, same rule. Uh, be careful. So I I try to resist Christian purity culture messages, and to let people remember that sexuality is a gift of God. Um, it is something about who God is sparked in us the sexuality that we now embody um, in ways with one another. And that we need to do that just as wisely and carefully and beautifully as we do the way we use our words, as the way we use our fists, as the way we use our thoughts. Um, all of that has the potential to do harm to others and therefore hurt community, which hurts God, or to be beautiful and to to share love and to grow connection and relationship, which makes God chuckle and enjoy and be proud of the community that we're that we're growing. Absolutely. Uh, I th I think that's a, a good uh, coda. Um, before next week, we t we go into holy war and violence. Oh my goodness! 
but we'll discuss those with smiles on our faces. <laughs> Perfect time. We can imagine what it looks like to end a 20-year war. And uh, yes, and the most recent comments that called some of the attacks that killed the innocent civilians and children a righteous strike. Ugh. Don't get me started. Well, I guess next week you will get me started. The next, I, I'm trying to gear you up so that next week you're started. Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> Joel, it's good to be with you as always. Thanks, Rabbi. And to all of our religion fans out there, keep it real. Thank you for joining us on the Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert. And on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real. <laughs>